Here's an old name for you. If you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 9, please. If you need a Bible, slip up your hand and we'll get you a Bible. The account that we're going to read this morning is an account, really, of a new life. The focus of this biblical account is what? Anybody know? Anybody read ahead? Jesus does what? If you saw the movie, you have a clue. He opens the eyes of a man born blind, right? And so the man himself describes this miracle. He says, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was blind, in verse 32. And when you think about the life that this man had um, before he had an encounter with Jesus Christ, with the Messiah, when Jesus opened his eyes, he really truly did give him a whole new life, didn't he? And as we discover in our text this morning, as we go through it, Jesus not only gave him a new life physically, but he has a new life spiritually. He's reborn. Now prior to this encounter with Jesus Christ, he couldn't work, could he? There was nothing he could do. He didn't know what his own mother's face looked like. Didn't know what his parents looked like. Knew their voices, but didn't know their faces. He had never seen a sunrise. He had never seen a sunset. He would never seen the clouds. All the things that we take for granted, that we see every day, he had never seen before. And up until this point in his life, he didn't know who Jesus was either. But all of that for him is about to change. So when Jesus opens his eyes, his life changes forever. There was an invisible line drawn in his life before this. There's the line, his life without sight, his life before his encounter with Jesus Christ, and his life after being given sight, his life after his encounter with Jesus Christ. And we all have that line drawn in our lives as well, don't we? We have our life before Christ, and we have our life after Christ. Never the two should meet, but all too often they do, don't they? From that point on, his life changed. He no longer walked in darkness. He now walks in the light. And the same can be said for all of us. We live part of our lives outside of the truth of God. We walked in darkness. And now since our encounter with the risen Christ, we live our life walking in the light. Many of us had always heard of this man, Jesus Christ, but we, many of us hadn't had an encounter with him. But when we did, when our eyes were opened to the truth, from that point on, our lives changed, didn't they? We were given a new life. We were never the same again. We're no longer walking in darkness, but walking in the light. And that has changed us. An encounter with Jesus Christ has changed us forever. And as we see this morning, it's going to change this man forever as well. So let's dig in. And I want you to see as we go through the text this morning, Lord willing, we're going to go through the entire chapter I want you to see if you can draw the parallel between this man's new life and our new life. So verse 1 of chapter 9. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Now it's been a little while since we've been in the Gospel of John, so we need to get our, our bearings kind of. Um, we, in chapter 8, we learned that Jesus had spent the night on the Mount of Olives, right? And, and having just come from there, I can see why this was a favorite place of Jesus. It's just so serene, so peaceful. It's outside the city. It's, out, it's just a place. It's just beautiful there. And I can understand why this was a favorite place for Jesus to go to. So he comes down from the Mount of Olives, and he comes to the temple early in the morning, and he begins to teach. Remember this? And as he's teaching, a group of religious leaders bring this this woman caught in adultery and before him, and he deals with the matter very wisely by saying, ye who is without, the first, without sin, rather, cast the first stone. After that, he enters into this lively conversation, which is pretty much takes up the whole rest of the chapter in chapter 8, discussing back and forth with the religious leaders their position in God. And they believe that their righteous acts of obedience to the law and their position with their father Abraham saved them. And Jesus reminds them that they're sinners just like everyone else and that the only way to be saved is through him. And so the way they chose to end that argument was by what? Picking up stones to stone Jesus. 
in their minds, it was better to get rid of him, better to put, them out, put him out of their lives altogether so they didn't have to deal with him. That was better in their minds than hearing the truth. And isn't that true? Oftentimes people, when they're confronted with the truth, respond in anger to the truth. Because the truth sometimes hurts, doesn't it? The text tells us that Jesus then hid himself and leaves the temple unharmed and heads toward the lower part of the city, which is near the Pool of Siloam. Now, I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice the reaction of Jesus to all of this. Was his reaction to panic? Pretty scary stuff. These men are very powerful. Obviously, at, at one point in his life, they do go through with their threats to have him put to death. Was he... Did he get angry over it? Did he get upset because they rejected him? No, he didn't act that way with any of those things. Emily, can you turn this down just a little bit, please? His reaction was to continue to minister to those who were in desperate need of healing and salvation. That's it. Jesus is unfazed by the Pharisees. He's unfazed by them trying to kill him. Spurgeon writes, one of the things worthy to be noticed in our Lord's character is his wonderful quiet of spirit, especially his marvelous calmness in the presence of those who misjudged and insulted and slandered him. I wish we could be, I wish I could be so calm in the face of those things. So he walks away from the temple, and as he's walking away from the temple, as he's heading down toward the Pool of Siloam, he comes across the man begging in the street. And I can tell you to this day, there are beggars in the streets of Jerusalem, especially around where all the tourists hang out. And they'll come right up to you. Some of them, it's, it's very noticeable why they're begging. Some of them, not so noticeable, but they'll come up to you, and they're holding a little tin cup and they're looking for any kind of money that you give them, drop a few shekels in there, they're, they're, they're begging for alms. And Jesus, as he passes by, that's exactly what this blind man is doing. He's sitting in this spot, probably been in this spot for years, and he's begging for alms. Proverbs has many verses in reference to giving to the poor, and I'm going to share just a couple of them with you. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. Proverbs 19:17, And Proverbs 21, verse 13 says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Now, the King James Version of your Bibles, the tra that translation uses that word alms several times to describe giving to the poor. Most of your modern translations have unfortunately changed that name to righteousness or charitable deeds, right? I believe alms is the best word to use here in all of our translations because in the Greek it means mercy. It means pity. When we give to the poor, it's, we're having mercy on them. We're, we're having pity upon them. We're showing them the mercy of God. Mercy because we're giving them something they didn't earn. We're giving them something they don't deserve. Does that sound familiar to anyone here? So Jesus is going to show this blind man mercy in a way that surpasses money. He's going to open his eyes and give him a new life. And it reminds me of the beggar who sat by the gate beautiful and, and Peter and John passed by him and he's also crying out for alms. And we pick up that story in Acts chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. And I think it's up on the screen. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. And so he gave him his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have... I give you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He asked for alms. He asked for money. But what he received instead was far greater. He received the mercy of God. God healed him through Peter. How many times have we become disappointed, even depressed, over the fact that something we asked for from God, we didn't get exactly what we asked for? Especially when that involves healing. And what we tend to forget is that his mercy, 
is all that we really ever need, isn't it? And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the text tells us, right, that he was born blind. How does John know this? Well, it's very possible that the disciples know this man. He's probably been sitting in this same spot for years, and they pass him every day. Hundreds of people have passed by him. And this may, be a very well, this may have been a very well-known condition that this man had, and the disciples may have even known the man. Or he simply could have been just saying, please help me, I was born blind, kind of alerting those who passed by to his dire situation, and, and, and kind of asking, maybe highlighting the fact that he was born blind in the hopes that they'll have mercy and pity on him and just throw him a few shekels. But the question the disciples pose to Jesus is an interesting question. Who sinned, this man or his parents? And the question suggests, right, that he sinned in the womb before he was born. If he was born this way, the logic goes, then he must have sinned before he was born, and his blindness is a punishment for that sin. Or his parents sinned, and he's being punished for the sins of his parents by being born blind and becoming a burden to them for the rest of his life. And by the way, both of these beliefs, as crazy as they sound to us, were pretty common in the day of Jesus. They were pretty well known. They were, they were, this is what they believed. And of course the misconception here is that God punishes sin unjustly. It wouldn't be fair, would it, to punish a baby in the womb who does not yet understand the very concept of sin. Yes, the Bible teaches us that we're born in sin, in sin we're conceived, right? Meaning that from the moment that we are born, we enter this world with a sin nature. Where do we get that sin nature from? We get it from Adam. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So through one man, through Adam, we inherited a sin nature. So when we get to heaven, we can ask Adam, what were you thinking? And he'd probably say, you know what, dude, if you were in my spot, you would have done the same thing. I don't have to use dude in heaven, but they will when I get there. David wrote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 51, verse 5. So yes, we're born with a sin nature. And if you've ever spent any time alone with a two-year-old, you know that is true. <laughs> but to sin in the womb and be punished for something you have no concept of, that doesn't sound like the God that I know, does it? And it doesn't sound like the God that we've all come to know that would punish a baby for the sins of his parents. In fact, well, let me babies are born every day who suffer the consequences of their parents' sin, aren't they? Babies are born with birth defects all the time as a consequence to their parents' sin. When Oliver was born, he was premature, and he was in the NICU for, for a, it was over a week. And there was a baby in there who was suffering from the effects of his mother's addiction to drugs and what that poison did to that little body. The Bible tells us that we're not punished. God doesn't punish us for the sins of our parents. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Deuteronomy 24:16. So, the question is, of course, does God punish sin? And the answer to that is, absolutely he punishes sin. The sin of all mankind will judge them punished. The wages of that sin is death. For a believer, however, that sin has already been judged. That sin has already been punished on the cross of Jesus Christ. It was there that it was put to death. Jesus took that sin, our sin, upon himself, put it to death on the cross, and suffered the wrath of God for us. So my sin, your sin, has been made white as wool. It has been forgotten as far as the east is from the west. But for those who die in their sin, they will face judgment for that sin. They will face the wrath of God if they're not covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, we as believers may be chastised for our sin, our sinful behavior, our rebellious behavior. 
God may have to correct us. He broke the ruler on me quite a few times. But we're not punished in the sense that we're condemned for our sin. Jesus took that condemnation for us on the cross. Bear in mind, we still suffer the consequences of our sin, don't we? That consequence may bring punishment to us, but it's not God punishing us for our sin. It's us bringing our own punishment through the consequences of our sin. But for those who are in Christ, for those who abide in Him, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen? So Jesus, Jesus clears it up for them, and He says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. This man didn't sin in the womb. His parents didn't sin, causing them to become blind. Listen, birth defects are very often the consequence of being born into a world of sickness, death, and sin. It's, it's a consequence of being born in the fall of Adam. This is a consequence of it. When Adam sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the world was plunged in to sin, sickness, and death because of that rebellion. Man was created not knowing sin, sickness, or death, but the rebellion in the garden brought all of that into this world. This man is born with a disability. Could God have prevented that? Well, if we believe that God is sovereign over all, that, that Jesus knows us before we're even formed in our mother's womb, then we'd have to believe that this man's blindness did not take God by surprise, right? In fact, we're going to learn as we go a little further on in our text that his blindness is for a very specific reason. Many children today are born with birth defects. And for whatever reason God has for allowing that in their lives, we will never understand it. God's ways, His thoughts are higher than our ways and our thoughts. We don't think or act the way He does. And to be very frank with you, I'm glad we can understand God because the day we have them all figured out, the day He can be understood is the day He ceases to be God. And the good news is that we can get to know Him and we can get to know His great love for us, but His ways and His thoughts will always remain higher than ours. Now, God knew this man would be born blind and that he would spend most of his life struggling with this disability. And Jesus gives us the answer, the reason why, that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, you could ask yourself, why would God allow this man to be born blind just so that he could heal him years later? And if that's your question, you're missing the point. You see... It's not the disability that we're born with that makes us who we are. And it's not the disability that comes upon us sometimes later in life that defines who we are. Our identity, who we are, our disability, whether we have a disability or an ability, is in Christ. That's what defines us. That's what makes us who we are, is who we are in Christ, not our abilities or our disabilities. So the question we really should be asking is, what is it that we value more in life? Do we what do we value more than God? Do we value sight more than God? Do we value our life itself more than God? Do we value mobility or hearing or any of those things more than God? Paul cried out for God in his disability, which many believe, I believe, was very, very poor eyesight. And if you read some of Paul's letters, he even says in a few of them, I'm sorry for writing so big. You know, I believe it takes Paul 100 pages just to write a few sentences. He's writing real big because he can't see. And in some of his letters, it even says, this person wrote this for me. Now, for a man who loves to read and write, not being able to see very well is very debilitating indeed, right? Paul cried out to the Lord to heal him of this. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your what? In your weakness. And so Paul responds by saying, Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul valued the work of God in his life more than he valued his own sight. God wasn't glorified by what Paul could do in his own abilities. God was glorified by what God did through Paul's disability. Listen, there's been suffering in this world ever since the creation of this world, and, and there will be ever since the fall in the garden, I should say, and there will be suffering in this world until Jesus returns. 
And the only way we could even begin to understand that suffering is when we look at suffering through the related to God. When we look at it through a relationship with God. When suffering occurs in the life of a believer, God will use that suffering to make manifest His own strength in our life. So that others see His might. Others see His power through us so that through our weakness, His strength is made manifest. One of those examples, there's two of them I'm going to use this morning. One of them is Johnny Erickson Tata. Any of you heard of her? Now, she was paralyzed at the age of 17 in a car accident, right? And so I'm going to read you a couple of her quotes. Now, she spent almost her entire life in a wheelchair. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. Another quote, We will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry and how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and his glory. And one last one. Maybe the truly handicapped people are the ones that don't need God as much. The second example, another brother in the, a brother in the Lord, Nick Wojcik. Now, if you know Nick, he was born without arms and without legs. Nick is quoted as saying, to know and believe in God is the best thing that can happen in your life. That's pretty amazing coming from someone who doesn't have legs and arms. The best thing that can happen in his life is to know God. He can turn what appears to be the worst event into the best. He can transform your struggles into learning. He can turn your suffering into strength. He can use your failures to bring success. And then one other quote from Nick. He says, when things in your life do not make sense, keep on praying. Ask God what he wants you to do and let him heal you on the inside. He understands that you and I are not perfect, and we are works in progress, but we should let him work within us. And I think really that's the key here to all of this. God may not prevent the disability or disease in our, in our lives. He may not even prevent it in the womb or, or out of the womb. He may not heal that disability. He may not heal that disease. But what's more important in physical healing is spiritual healing. It's being healed from the inside. He may not choose to change us physically on the outside, but that change that's occurred in each one of us on the inside, that is what's more visible to others. You understand that change that occurs on the inside is what people see on the outside of us, even especially in the face of a disability or a disease. And when they see what's inside of us come out of us, especially when we're in that position, it brings glory and honor to God. What makes us extraordinary as believers isn't our abilities. It's God's capability and what He's doing through us, not what we can do. Amen? And it's only when we realize that whether it's a disability or a disease, it doesn't matter. We are all weak in His sight. That without Him, we can do nothing. That when we realize our weakness... When we realize that without Him we can do nothing, it's then that God becomes stronger in us. That His strength is made perfect in our weakness. You see, we need to get out of the way and let God do the work through us. I must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus gets right to the point here. We can spend our whole lives arguing the finer points of Scripture, don't we? We can, and there's guys who do. Are we chosen, or did we choose? That's a big one, especially around here. Are we raptured before, during, or after the tribulation? That's another big one. These are theological debates that have no salvific... They, they don't matter one little bit for our salvation. They truly don't. These are just things we like to argue about. It doesn't really matter if you're chosen or if you choose. We always say if you want to know that you're chosen, choose. It doesn't matter if God comes, if Jesus comes for us in the beginning, the middle, or the end. I don't know why anybody would believe in a post-tribulation, but that's another message. None of those things matter. If you believe, however, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, 
that he sits now at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us, that he is the only way, that he is the only truth, that he is the only life, that we only are saved through him, then we can be brothers and sisters in the Lord. Those other things are just, just distractions, really. James says that we should be putting our faith into practice, right? That faith without works is dead. So we can sit around all day long and discuss theology. Jesus would still be in the temple arguing with the religious leaders if that's what the most important thing was. But Jesus leaves there. He leaves there because that's not the important thing. He walks away from that debate. And he advised us to do the same thing. The most important thing is the ministry. The most important thing is to reach out to this man who was once blind and open his eyes to the truth. That, to Jesus, is the most important thing. Now, there are people, and you know probably some of these people, who will argue with you until the proverbial cows come home. Where it is the cows go during the day, I have no idea. That's for another message. And I remember having a discussion like this about Jesus with a Muslim in, in the Allentown market one day. And we're debating back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until I realized that I'm never going to change his mind. And he's never going to change my mind. So why have this circular argument? We're just going to stay in here all day going tit for tat. I'd still be debating him, if, just like Jesus would still be arguing if that was the most important thing. Notice... I think an important point here, Jesus doesn't correct their bad doctrine, does he? Jesus could have stood there and had a theological debate with his apostles and taught them. He says, the most important thing is to do the work of him who sent me. Remember when he broke away from the feast, his family had gone to the feast, and they were heading back, and Mary and Joseph remember frantically that their son's not with them. And so Jesus is in the temple by himself, and they double back to get him. What did Jesus say to them when Mary found him? Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus was here to do the work of him who sent him. He was here to be about his father's business. What about us? Are we here to do the works of our father in heaven? Absolutely we're here to do the work of our Father in heaven. Jesus preached salvation through him. Jesus re- he's preached repentance. And we are to continue to do the exact same thing. Jesus spent three years showing all the people that he encountered God the Father in him. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How many of us can say that? Because we're called to do the same thing. And when Jesus says, that he must work while it is daylight because darkness is coming. He's not talking about day into the night. He's speaking metaphorically about life and death. For him, his days are growing shorter. Night is going to turn into death for him very shortly. It's fast approaching. And Jesus is trying to instill in his disciples a sense of urgency. This is the most important thing. We can sit around all day long and and debate this theological question or we can go out and do the ministry that we've been called to do Paul understood that urgency Paul wrote we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block to the Greeks foolishness but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God the power to change someone's life is in the cross of Christ not in a theological debate listen if you have Christ in your heart, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you die with bad doctrine, you're going to heaven. They'll fix your doctrine in heaven. If you die without Jesus Christ, whether you have bad doctrine or you're the world's greatest theologian, you're not going to heaven. So what's more important? Listen, the Holy Spirit will correct us if we have bad doctrine. And I'm not saying that I don't want you guys to have good doctrine. I want you to have a solid foundation. But for us, the day is short. The hour of the darkness of death will come upon each one of us, and it is then that we will no longer be able to share this gospel message. It's too late once death grips us. As long as we have breath in our lungs, we can proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ until he returns. 
You know, I don't know if you ever heard of a book entitled The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. Have you ever seen that book by Mark Cahill? Do you know what the one thing you can't do in heaven is? Witness. Because everybody there has already heard the message. But we can still witness here on this earth because not everyone on this earth has heard the message. So what I'm saying is, when you address, don't go into this whole big theological debate with them. Just give them the cross of Christ. Just give them Jesus Christ because it is in that power, in the name of Jesus Christ, in what he's done on the cross that has the power to save. I don't care how many years you spent in seminary, that's not going to change anyone's mind. It's the cross of Christ that has the power. And when he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. How was man formed? How was the first man formed? From the dust of the ground, from clay, right? And here is Jesus, the creator of the universe, taking the substance used in creation to restore the sight of this man who's never had sight before. It's an amazing miracle considering all the nerve endings that had to be restored, the brain signals that had to be activated. It's an amazing miracle, isn't it? It's a, it's a miracle at the hands of the Redeemer. It's a miracle not so much of healing, but of creation. And I think the main thing for us is that the fact that Jesus uses mud, he uses this clay, there's a significance to that for us. He's using the same clay, the same dust, the same dirt that this man was created from to heal him, to restore his sight. And he's saying, in, in essence, I am the Messiah. I am the Creator. By restoring this man's sight, sight that he never had from birth, it's a miracle of creation, isn't it? He's created sight in the man who had no sight at all. It's a reminder to us that we are the clay, and he is the potter. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 4 through 6, we read, And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, and it seemed good to the potter to make then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And the same is true of us. We are each a vessel. We are each clay in the hands of the master craftsman. Paul wrote to Timothy, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. So Jesus, the master craftsman, is preparing this vessel, this man, for his honor, that the good works of his Father in heaven would be manifested through this vessel of clay. Paul also wrote, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now this all fits into Jesus, what Jesus is teaching them. We are His. He formed us, each and every one of us. He is the potter. He breathed life into us. He created us. For what? To just sit on a shelf and look good? No. He's placed a treasure inside these earthen vessels and that treasure is the gospel message. The light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. You know, in the caves of Qumran, many, 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 many years ago, the Essenes hid the treasure of God's word in earthen vessels. And they hid them in the caves so that the Roman soldiers didn't destroy them. And so one day, many, 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 many years later, a young Bedouin boy was throwing rocks into the caves like little boys will do, and he hears a strange sound. He actually breaks one of the earthen vessels. And so the jars are then discovered, and the ancient manuscripts of God's Word were also discovered. We know them today as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they are truly a treasure indeed. And so God has placed a treasure inside each one of us, His message, 
a treasure that needs to be shared with the world, not hidden away. We are called to be a light on the hill, not to put what we know under a basket, not to put that light under a basket, but let that light shine for everyone who sees it. The message that we have, the message that each one of us has, the treasure that we have is that the creator of the world has come to save the world by the shedding of his blood to set this world free from the bondage of sin and death. Jesus puts mud in his eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Jesus is sent to do the work of his Father. And part of that work is to open the eyes of the blind to the truth. The truth. Have your eyes been opened to the truth? That is what we have to share with others. And we're going to look at that as we go a little further on in the message. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. And he said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? So what's happening here? A new thing is happening. He's beginning to change, isn't he? His friends, they're the first to notice that there's something different about him. He's had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And even now, even to his friends, he's barely recognizable. Even to those who are closest to him, they're having a hard time recognizing him. His eyes have been opened to the truth by the truth. And he answered and said to them, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. So this man called Jesus. Now he doesn't know exactly who Jesus is, but he knows the name of Jesus. A name above all names. A name that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This blind beggar may not have known who Jesus was just yet, but he knows that Jesus deserves the glory for what is happening in him. He's having what we call a mountaintop experience, right? And so everyone who's had a mountaintop experience knows what comes next. We have to go back down into the valley. And that's exactly what happens next. The Pharisees begin, the question is changed, and there's always those who are going to sow the seeds of doubt about the change that the Lord has is, is effected in all of our lives. And I want you to see as we go through this, this next passage of Scripture just how the enemy is working in this scene to cause doubt and division in this man's life. So picking up verse 13, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees, now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others say, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him, because he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents to him who had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son, and we know that he was born blind. And by what means he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So you see the seeds of doubt already being sown here? This man isn't of God because he heals on the Sabbath. But there's even division among those who doubt. Even the religious leaders are divided over this. And you can be sure, wherever there is division and confusion, that's the enemy. Because we serve a God of order. Even the blind beggar is a little confused. He thinks that Jesus is a prophet. But he knows there's something different about Jesus. He's just not yet quite sure what it is. 
But there's a lot at stake here for him. There's a lot at stake here for his family. These men that he's standing before, these Pharisees, are very, very powerful individuals. And they have the power to put him out of the synagogue. And in that day, that was a big deal. Because that was your whole community kind of gathering place. That was where your whole life and your, your family's life was based around that time in the synagogue. And so the world is already exerting pressure upon him. How many of you, when you first came to Christ, when you first began to, people began to see that change in you, they began to put pressure on you? They began to sow those seeds of doubt in you. Even some of us have experienced friends and even family members saying, if you're going to be one of them, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then we just can't hang anymore. And so it comes down to a choice, really, doesn't it? It always does. Who or what do you value more? Do you value relationship with Jesus Christ over your relationship even with your friends and family? Many of us have had to make that hard choice. And this man makes the right choice. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. And the man answered and said to them, Why? This is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he's from. Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, and if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has not been unheard. Since the world began, it has been unheard that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Though I was blind, I now see. He's had an encounter with Jesus. His eyes have been opened and he isn't the same. He will never be the same again. Part of that change we see already occurring in him, don't we? Now he's beginning to speak boldly for Jesus Christ. And he's speaking boldly about the miracle that Jesus has already worked in his life. And it's a bold move for him to stand before these Pharisees and, and talk boldly about Jesus Christ because they're sitting in a seat of authority. I can't tell you how many times my parents were called to the authorities for me. And how many times the authorities called me for mine. So, so I know they're sitting there struggling, but they had excuses. Listen, he's old enough. He knows. Put him out, not us. But he says, this man is of God. This is what Jesus has been telling the Pharisees all along. He is from God. But they're not listening to him. If he isn't from God, the logic of this man's perfectly logical, right? And they're still not getting it. How could he have opened the eyes of someone who was born blind if he's not of God? If this isn't of God, because this is a miracle not of just healing, but of creation, how could this possibly have happened if this man wasn't from God? Ever since this man has had an encounter with Jesus Christ on that road, on that, on that little spot there where he was begging, his heart and his mind are beginning to change. It's beginning to become open to the fact that Jesus Christ is not just a mere prophet. He's not just a good man. He's not just a healer. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And this man isn't the same person. He doesn't look. He doesn't act. He doesn't even speak the same. And it's very possible that he's just as baffled as everyone else in this, about these changes. But listen to what he's doing here. He's witnessing to the Pharisees, isn't he? He's witnessing to them. And so you and I are the best authority of what God has done in our lives. Someone once said, a man with experience is never at the mercy of a man with only an argument. Think about that for a minute. A man with experience is never at the mercy of a man with just an argument. Our experience is powerful. No one can deny what the Lord has done in our lives. They may question it. They may doubt it. They may think we're foolish. 
but they can't doubt, they can't, well, they can't deny, rather, what we know to have taken place in our own lives. Just as this man, we are powerful, positive witnesses for Jesus Christ and what he's done in our lives. And what I love about this passage is the religious leaders tell him, give glory to God for this miracle. He already has. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins, and now you're teaching us? And they cast them out. Oh, the righteousness of the Pharisees. You can almost hear the disdain in their voice, can't you? You? You, a sinner? You're teaching us? And the inference here, of course, is that they're not sinners, right? They're righteous. Who is it that's really blind here? The best thing that could ever have happened to this man is to be put out of this religious system that was literally leading them straight into hell. And sometimes we grumble and we get upset when, when we lose something or someone in our lives, don't we? And we look at this, not at, we look at it from, not from the position of what God's freeing us to do. We just look at the loss. And what God's freeing this man to do, he's freeing him from the limitations of that spiritual oppression that he was under, and he's freeing him now to worship Jesus, and that's exactly what he does. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, they said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So as he comes out of this religious system of oppression, who's the first one there to meet him? Jesus. Jesus meets us where we're at all the time. And he's there to assure him that you're not going to go through this alone. That you may have been under tradition before, but now you have a relationship with someone who's never going to leave you or forsake you. So he comes out of the religious system right into a relationship with Jesus Christ. From his initial encounter with Jesus, his life began to change. Do you see that? And now with this confession of faith, he's received a new life, a new life in Jesus Christ. The conversion's complete, but the transformation is just beginning, isn't it? He's going to now be made more into the image of Jesus Christ. We call it sanctification. And his eyes are going to open wider and wider and wider to who Christ is and what Christ has done in his life. What an amazing journey he's embarked on. What an amazing journey we've all embarked on and are still walking. Even though he can see things now that he's never been able to see before, there's even greater things that await him. The Bible tells us, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. No matter what happens in this life, God has prepared for each of us a place in heaven. Amen? And it's above or beyond what we could think or imagine. Paul writes that it's so awe-inspiring, so magnificent that words can't do it justice. By declaring Jesus is his Lord, his eyes that have been opened, will one day, when they close here on this earth, one day those very same eyes will open and he will gaze upon the one who gave him sight that day. And he will see Jesus in his glory and he will be glorified and he will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. What a wonderful day that will be for him. What a wonderful day that will be for all of us because we'll all get to, listen, all of our eyes have been opened, haven't they? All of our eyes were closed. We were all blind to the truth. And one day when those eyes close here on this earth, they will open again and we will gaze upon the face of our Savior. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who may see and those who see may be blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind... You would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Now this blind beggar could see that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. His eyes were open to the truth. And his sin now will be taken to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross here and as we go through the Gospel of John. We'll follow him right to the cross where he will no longer ever face condemnation for that sin again. 
It'll be put away as far as the east is from the west. But the Pharisees who remain blind to the truth, and everyone else to this day who remains blind to the truth, will remain in bondage to sin. And if they die that way, they will face the judgment of God. They will face the wrath of God. The Pharisees, Jesus rebuked in Matthew 23, he says to them, Woe to you, meaning grief will befall you. He calls them blind fools, and truly they are blind. They have the truth standing right before them. Their eyes are wide open, yet they can't see the truth that's standing before them, that's speaking to them. Same is true for many people in this world today, even our own family, even our own friends. They see the miracle in our lives. They see the change in us, and yet, with their eyes wide open, they refuse to see the truth. They refuse to see the difference, the change that's right before their very eyes. But that should never, ever stop us from telling others about the treasure that God has entrusted us with. Look at this man. The day he left, that morning he left his parents' home to go to that spot he's gone to for years and years and years, and his life changed in a moment, didn't it? His life changed that morning in a moment. He never thought when he left that house that day that he would be a different man when he returned. But an encounter with the living Christ changed his life forever. And so we don't ever know anybody we witness to. The things that the Holy Spirit speaks through us how he can use that to change someone's life forever. I'll close with the words of a commentator. He said, in this book, in the Bible, we have the revelation of the Lord himself. As we come to it, we have come through difficulty, through hardship, through trial, through resistance, but that's all part of God's way to teach us what these words mean. As we read through the tears, oftentimes that circumstances place upon us, our eyes are opened, and we see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of our God. It is through the difficulties, it is through the hardships, is what gives us the witness that we have. And it's that witness that even in the face of those hardships and those difficulties, in the disabilities and the abilities, that God uses all of those things in our lives as our witness to others. Witnessing is just that. It's simply telling others what Jesus has done in our lives. It's our witness. It's what we've been through. And, that's, and, and the fact that the Lord's walked every step of the way with us has never left us or forsaken us. He's been with us every step of the way. And even, even in, in the hardest times in our lives, our lives have been changed because God has become more visible in us through the tears and through the pain and through the suffering. You know, the world seeks answers to pain and suffering, doesn't it? And we know that the only answer is Jesus Christ. The world seeks cures. It seeks healing. And we know that the only cure, the only healing, is Christ Jesus. We know this. How? Because we have lived it. We have this awesome responsibility placed upon each of us to share that experience of what God's done in our lives with others. Who knows, our experience, as I said, our testimony, our witness, could lead someone else to their own encounter with Jesus Christ. And just like that encounter with Jesus Christ changed our lives, prayerfully, hopefully, it'll change their lives. Amen? Please stand.